0: And then we talked about the personal gospel in the second week, how that personally applies to us. It's not just good news for the cosmos and the creation, but it's personally good news for us as Christ will come to redeem us. And then finally, Dr. Childers uh, ended his series last week and he talked about how we repent. And then he had talked about our affections and our idols and how we are to be about removing those affections from all of the things that distract and throwing them on the throne of grace and giving them to God our Father. So we're going to look at that, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me on a really great analogy or an illustration that a preacher showed me. We're going to this, and as a pastor and a preacher, this is the foundation and this is the ultimate authority So how do you view scripture? You know, God just didn't know how we would develop. There's not enough pronouns in that. There's not enough circumstances that seem to explain everything. Man, I know that it says that uh, when I hate somebody, I murder them in my heart. But I just, you you don't know how bad this person is. So is this your view of scripture? Someone should update that, fix it. We're just going to kind of go over some of the speed bumps. Or, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't agree with it. But help my heart submit to it because this is your word and your will. And you teach us and train us through this. So think about how you view scripture as a believer. Because if you look down on it and you stand your feet upon it in a way that says that it is imperfect and it is flawed because I say it is. That's a dangerous heart position to be. But if you can look at it and say, there are hard things in here to understand and accept, but it is God's righteous truth, that is the place where God's surgery can continue to refine you and sanctify you. So let's go to the Lord briefly, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, we believe that your word is true. We believe that it pierces very, very, closely and deeply in all of the places that we try to hide. Lord, I'm thankful this morning for my brothers and sisters who gather together to to worship the Lord through singing, through worship the Lord, through hearing the preached word, who worship the Lord through fellowship and unity. We thank you for all those that you've gathered in here. We pray that your word would strike true, that it would go deep, that we would see where we've been hiding, and where we've been holding things away. So Lord, draw our hearts close to you in this moment. Bless the application of your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So about 10 years ago, the Department of Defense called me and said, Hey, we want you to build us a calibration field. And my first question was, what in the world is that? And they said, well, we want you to take this huge piece of acreage here in Central Florida, and we want you to put these targets, these reflective targets, 50 of them, all across this acreage, and we're gonna, we're gonna tell you where to put them. And I said, okay, well, we'll do that, but why? And they explained that when they send combat teams into battle, whether it be a SEAL team, a Ranger team, that they are equipped with a little GPS unit And what that does is it allows them to move in safety around the battlefield and coordinate with the commander. And I said, well, that's great, but how does that translate to here? And they said, well, we have to calibrate it. We can't just manufacture it and send them into the field. They could go over a cliff, walk through a minefield, walk right into an enemy's trap. And so they take this little device, they place it on a stand, and they would beam it to all of these different little targets. And that would calibrate this little piece of equipment. So in many ways this morning, as we look at Psalm 27.4, we think about our own hearts in this. Going to ask, there's probably many of you that are veteran believers here. There may be a couple newer believers here. So I hope that this can be a calibration of our desires and our dwelling this morning. The other thing that we need to be reminded of constantly is that our hearts wander and our affections change. Our circumstances blow us around. So we want to look this morning at what Scripture talks about as we look deeper into these two points in Psalm 27, 4, so that we can have a better, fuller understanding of that really profound verse. So this morning, let's talk about desire. Desire. What are the desires of your heart? And I, I'm not asking in an ultra-spiritual way because so many times at church we can give the very formulaic answers, the Sunday school answers. But I want to ask you more deeply to sit and consider. When you wake up, what's the first thing that you think about or want? Is it your phone? Is it a Facebook update? Is it thinking about getting to the football game or watching the football game? Is it playing a video game? Maybe it's reading a book. Maybe it's just being alone away from everybody else. Some of these desires inherently are not bad, but it should be an indicator of where our heart's at spiritually. And unfortunately, I think with today's bombardment of media, and instant gratification, we have taken a lot of those things and made them idols in our lives. So it's important to think about our desires. Sometimes as well, our desires are revealed through the circumstance of discomfort. So are you a person that when you go through a difficult time, you eat your feelings? And I see some funny facial expressions on that one. But is it something that you run to? Is there, is there a particular vice or a comfort that you find? So when we think about our desires, we need to go to the Word, and we need to see what it says. So when we think about the way that the Bible describes and teaches us about our desires, we are confronted immediately with a sin problem. Our desires are corrupted. So if we think about this verse and really reflect on this as I read it, James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we can understand that the battle that goes on within us of our desires being upon other affections than God, that this is a part of the curse and the fallenness that sin brought upon not just our bodies, but our minds and our heart. We don't want God in the way that God has, had designed us in the beginning. When you think back to the relationship, and we're going to talk about that when we get to dwelling, but Adam and Eve desired to spend time in open authenticity with God walking in the garden how different is that now when we think about a naked adam and eve standing with the holy and perfect righteous god and there being no shame there being no impedance but that relationship was a beautiful thing how far removed are we from that we dress ourselves up we look good we say the right things we got to get ready to go and then we hide So we understand a little more. Our desires are corrupted. So if our desires are corrupted, how can we have any hope? Well, this comes through the beautiful plan of salvation. Galatians 5.24 lists this out for us. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So this is good news for all of the believers. If you are in Christ, he is helping you through sanctification. You are putting off the old man and putting on the new. So we have hope as believers, which leads us to our third point here on desire. This, turns, this gives us hope and turns our desires from bondage in sin to battleground in the spirit. So again, in Galatians 5:17, for the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There is a beautiful mercy in the fact that the spirit gives us the strength and sets itself against our sinful flesh. So we can have hope in that we are not bound to continue in that desire becoming sin, as we read about in the first verse. So that is a beautiful hope. So here's the big question. What did Jesus model while he was here? What did he tell us about his desires? And the answer comes in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where i am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world so this is the prayer of our savior as he's communing with the father before going to the cross and thinking about this verse his desire is so deep and it includes us And there's a beauty in that because he was going to go to the cross and he was going to suffer and he was going to die. He was going to pay our sin. He was going to defeat death. He was going to rise again and then ascend to his rightful place at the throne. But his desire that he expresses so it could be recorded in human history and inspired in divine scripture was for you and it was for me. But even more beautiful, his desire wasn't just to pay the price, but in that second part of the verse, those whom you've given me, be with me where I am. So in his glory, as he returns, as he completes his work, he's given us the hope of glory forever, and he desires that we dwell with him. So you've probably heard it said many times that David was a man after God's own heart. And there's a lot of great examples of David wanting to be a righteous man, striving to be a righteous man, striving to uphold what the Lord called him to or told him to do. But sometimes we have a hard time biblically substantiating that. Sounds like a great concept. Well, we're going to look right now at some really cool reflections between Christ's prayer and David's prayer. So David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. This is his desire. And Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. This is Jesus' desire. We see similarities in the desire. And then that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. And Jesus says that they may be with me where I am. And then the timing, all of the days of my life, obviously, David was a finite human. But Christ, in his human flesh, would go to the grave and rise again. But he is immortal God. So for you love me before the foundation of the world. He's not constrained in the same way. So their prayers are slightly different in that. But look at the glory portion. David asked to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And Jesus says... So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. So such a beautiful similarity, reflection in David being a man after God's own heart. So I challenge you this morning in your desires to be a man after God's own heart. Surrender your desires before God. So the things that you crave, the things that you love, hold them out and hold them to Scripture. Are they in themselves sinful or evil? Is the time or the commitment to them sinful or evil, even though the content may not be? Do you seek his will and pursue godliness? So even something that can be innocuous can take the place of the time that we're to spend in a pursuit of the godly life. They can be Isolating to us. They can cause us to withdraw. They can reduce our. Authenticity or our intimacy. In our relationships. And then finally. In all things seek God's glory. Not the glory of a promotion. The glory of riches. Power prestige. But in everything that you do. As you go. Do it to the glory of God. So. We've looked at the four points. We've seen that our desires are corrupt. We see that there is hope through the salvation of Jesus Christ. And we see that the Spirit equips us and allows us to battle those sinful desires. And then we also are given the example of Christ himself, that he desires for us to be with him. So let's move into the dwelling portion and what we've talked about, what we've seen. So dwelling, believe it or not, dwelling is all through Scripture, and it's something that many times we overlook. It's listed out time and time again. So what is dwelling and how does God inform us of dwelling by his example? So when we think about just the word dwelling. There's a lot of translations to reside the one that I think is the most fitting is to abide. So you are present, you are engaged, you are known in that place. So when we think about American culture as it relates to dwelling, because this isn't really a word that we use a whole lot, there's a couple phrases that come to mind. The first is, home is where the heart is. Great platitude. There's no place like home. I should click my heels when I say that. (laughs) I don't care if we have our house or a cliff ledge or a cardboard box. Home is wherever we all are together. A home should be a stockade, a refuge from the flaming arrows of anxiety, tension, and worry. So what's home to you? Just at the beginning, at the surface level, when you think of home. Is it a little house with snow outside? You're surrounded by family. Everything's quaint and quiet and peaceful. So whatever that is, hold on to that. And we're going to work on calibrating that with God's actions and examples. So how did God dwell with us? Well, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see examples of this. So we're going to start in the Old Testament. Creation and the garden. And if you've read Genesis 1 through 3, first chapter, second chapter, and third chapter, there's the creation account. There's also the fall account. But there's a lot in between that God dwelt with his creation. And so God has a plan as the triune God, has a conversation that's recorded, creates everything in the cosmos, creates humanity in his likeness, but also gives humanity a purpose. He sets boundaries. If you remember, there were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And in a healthy way, God said, I'm setting you in paradise. I'm giving you perfect communion and relationship with me, but I'm setting a healthy boundary that this is not for you. He communed with them, says he walked in the coolness of the garden. But it also shows when Adam and Eve called out to God in response, when God said, where are you after they'd sinned? God did not condemn them in that moment, but instead he showed mercy and grace. Grace. As well with removing them from the garden, they'd already disobeyed him and they'd eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin had entered into them. But in his mercy, he did not allow them to eat of the tree of life to be condemned forever in that condition. And he cast them out of the garden. So we see that God's dwelling with man in the beginning was purposed, he cared for them, he set boundaries, he communed intimacy, he showed mercy, he showed grace. Moving on, here we are, fallen humanity, and we see God make covenants with the heads of his people. He created a people for himself through his covenant with Abraham, and he continued to care, th- care for them through his covenants with Moses. And provide for his people. So I'm going to read here from 2 Samuel 7. You're welcome to turn there with me. Verses 4 through 12. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day remember, as the Israelites came out of bondage, God dwelt with them in the form of a pillar of smoke during the day to guide the way. And then at night, he would become a pillar of fire as protection and light for his people. But here he's, he's talking about the house of cedar says but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying why have you not built me a house of cedar now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David thus the lord of hosts I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel and I have been with you wherever you went And I've cut off all your enemies from before you. So we see protection here in what he's stating. I have protected my people. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. We see a belonging that he's putting in but we see peace as well promised in this. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So we also see that he's bringing order to his people. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And there we see rest and we see hopefulness. So in in thinking of God's dwelling with the pillars, here he's referencing the house of cedar, the tabernacle. And we know David would be called on with the temple, and Solomon would ultimately build that temple. But through that we see the protection, the provision, a place of belonging, order, peace, rest, and a hope that will come. So moving into the New Testament and looking at dwelling. What we see in John, in John 1 1 and 2, and verse 14 in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is our ultimate example in what we see as the perfect human. And we've spent so much time in the gospel, so much time, in the epistles we know so much of jesus's character we're not going to go into great depth but i want you to think about the example that jesus gave so there is a beautiful reliance upon the lord that jesus showed in times of trouble in times of doubt he went to the father he withdrew to rest with the father he withdrew to commune with the father in times of difficulty even on the cross His call was to God, and ours should be the same. But even though he was fully God and fully man, there was great humility in what Jesus said and did. He had every right as the perfect human to make bold claims that would not have asserted the glory of God. But he chose not to because he honored his father. He obeyed. He submitted. So the humility that Jesus showed us in that, but even outside of that, the contentment that Jesus showed in his life and in his walk. Jesus did not try to amass followers as as a matter of fact. Many times he would tell people to be silent. It was not his time yet. Christ did not put together elaborate things for himself, but instead took the content humble route that god will provide in the perfect way at the perfect time all of the temptations that satan assailed on him as they were out in the desert he promised him the kingship over the world which was truly his already but satan's lies and temptation were to give him everything that he could want everything his heart would desire here on the earth and in his contentment with the design of the father And with his submission to God's will, he walked in humility and contentment. Ephesians 2, 12 through 22 is a really powerful example of the mind and the heart of Christ. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. So we see that Christ brings reconciliation. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So we see a dwelling that is made new in Christ. In him, you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in Christ we see this ministry of reconciliation. And this should inform our dwelling too. Are we humble? Are we content with our circumstances and where the Lord has placed us? What he allows to come across our path? And are we ministers of reconciliation? Do we preach the gospel? Do we preach Christ crucified? So we're seeing in these different ways that the Lord has Dwelt with his people in the Old Testament, now in the new with Christ. But it gets so much better. We see the great helper, the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13. This is really helpful for us to understand the gift and the power and the blessing and the benefit that the Holy Spirit is to the believer. And it exemplifies the Spirit's dwelling in us. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things has God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So he's opening our spiritual eyes. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So this is profound. You know, on the outside, we can do a lot of things and say a lot of things, but our heart is not known except to us. The same is true with God. His spirit knows and discerns the mind. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And here's the kicker. This is how we are able to have our spiritual lives, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So this spirit, the mind of God, imparts the knowledge of God to us. And in his dwelling, we've been in the Acts study, and we got to see Pentecost and the Samaritan Pentecost, and we will look at the Gentile Pentecost, but we see the Spirit being poured out after the promise of Christ, that he's going away and he's going to send a great helper, a helper that will allow us to understand God's truths as shown in in Scripture. Help us to be obedient like we talked about in in desires. It sets itself in opposition to our sinful flesh. So we're empowered and we're taught by the Spirit. But God's dwelling place is different at this point. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God did walk at one time in perfection with his creation. But then, because of our rebellion and our fallenness, he put us out, but he still dwelt with us. But this time his glory was in a confined space, in the Holy of Holies, in the ark, in the pillar, on the mountain with Moses. Many of these things that we see, but now he dwells within each of us. But even more so, the Spirit intercedes when we don't know ourselves When we don't understand ourselves, God's spirit, the great helper, does. And scripture talks about how it intercedes with groanings too deep for us to understand. So in his dwelling, he's our go-between. But as we think about interceding, this is to plead on behalf of someone else. The spirit, as we wrestle with ourselves, intercedes for us. That's part of the power and the promise that Jesus talked about with the great helper being sent. And at the same time, Christ mediates at the right hand of the Father. So through this dwelling, we're able to grow in our knowledge. We're able to understand and we're able to practice the ways of God. So he indwells us now. Let's look at what future dwell dwelling will look like with him. 2 Corinthians 5, 1-7 For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Anybody else groan? Like, body hurts, life's hard. Sometimes you just don't want to get up and keep going. That's, that's, That's us groaning. This is a hard, heavy life, circumstances, relationships, trials, tribulations. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Amen to that. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. I'm excited for that. For while we are still in this tent, oh, got that, for while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We are in the business of putting off the old man, dying to the old self, and putting on the new that Christ has given us. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit. As a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So, brothers and sisters, we have an awesome hope. We have a groaning life that we walk through as sojourners. We have difficulties and trials and tribulations, but we understand that it is for our sanctification. It's also for the good works that God prepared beforehand that he talks about. We are to labor in his kingdom. We are to witness. We are to make disciples as we are going. But there is an ultimate home that is awaiting us that is not here. So that is the future dwelling hope that we have with the Lord, that he is going to gather us to him, and it's going to be great. So we've looked at the Old Testament, we've looked at creation, we've looked at the garden, we've looked at the ways that God dwelt with his people in the old covenants, the Old Testament. We've looked at the new covenant in Christ how he's our minister of reconciliation. And then we've looked at how the Lord poured out his spirit. And each of these things, we've seen different attributes of how he dwelt with his people. So let's do a quick recap. This is not a complete exhaustive list, but this is going to be helpful as we kind of move towards our close here. So attributes of God's dwelling. God's dwelling is purposeful, protective, Intimate, caring, communion, or intimacy, merciful, gracious, content, humble, just, self-sacrificial, reliant upon God alone, and empowered by the Spirit. So all of this is necessary, and all of this is beautiful. But now we get to walk away, and we get to challenge ourselves in our relationships and our understanding. And we get to apply, with the help of the Spirit, all of these truths to our life. So how does God's dwelling inform our relationships? So in our walk with the Lord, in the same way that Adam and Eve were not open with God, and they hid themselves... Are you honest with yourself before the Lord as to who you are? Maybe you put on a great face, but maybe there's a lot of fear and insecurity. Maybe you don't truly trust the Lord. Maybe you don't truly know the Lord. Do you know your identity? You might say, well, you know, uh, son or daughter of the king. Yeah, that's true. But let's go a little more personal. Do you struggle with alcohol? You know what the beauty of being found in Christ is? There's a big difference between, that's my alcoholic son. That's my son who struggles with alcohol. Your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Your struggles don't define you, and your past sins don't define you. Only Christ and your relationship to him defines you. From him, if you truly dwell with him, so do you take your cares, your concerns to him in our marriages? Are you honest with your spouse? Might seem a lot to, to a lot of you young people like, Oh, I'm gonna tell him everything. Well, all you veterans, how many of us, when, when you go in and you fail or you struggle or you sin. It's so easy for us to close parts of ourselves off to our spouse. It's so easy for us to be inauthentic with our spouse or just shut people off or put a wall up. I don't want to talk about that. But we are to be intimate with one another in that covenant of marriage. We are to talk about our feeler, our fears and our failures. So do we act out of true authenticity in that, or do we breed confusion in our marriages? Men, just a heads up, anger is from our hurts, and it's a self-protective mechanism. Men are good at being angry. That's, that's something that comes easily to us. But it's not supposed to be a shield that doesn't allow us to deal with those hurts and our issues. It's also not supposed to be something that we put up so we don't have to apologize and humble ourselves before our wives. Women gossip and comparison; these um, these are not fruits of authenticity in a relationship. Maybe you're a parent. When we think about these attributes that God's given us in his dwelling with us, parents, are you engaged with your kids? Sure, I come home at night after work and, you know, I ask them how their day was at the dinner table. No. As you're going, are you training them and teaching them? Wherever it's appropriate, do you take them with you? Do you talk to them on their level? Do you get into their lives and dig in on what's going on? I have three little kids and they have so many words. And I try really, really hard to listen to everyone because it's revealing their little hearts and their little souls' condition. And it's my job to train them and to love them, to dwell with them well as their dad. So think about the example that you're giving your kids. I know that no other husband and wife ever fight. But again, the anger comes easy to us. What about the humility? Do you apologize to your kids when you're wrong? Do you come to them in humility and tell them about when you fail and why that's wrong? Kids, got something for you. So glad you're here in the service. This is so awesome that we have so many kids that want to sit under the word of God and learn. But kids, you have a commandment in Ephesians 6. Honor and obey your parents. And it's got a natural good consequence to it that the days of your life will be long on the earth. So don't do stupid stuff, and you're probably going to live a little longer. But going even deeper, kids, do you work in your home and in your relationships with your parents and siblings to dwell in unity? Or is it your perspective, or is it your view or idea That you're there to get out what you want, what you want to watch, what you want to do, what you want to eat, what you don't want to do. And then even more so, do you see your house and family as a place to have your needs met? Or do you see it as God's training ground for you to be in relationships with your own spouse and your own children and family one day? our faith families i know we talk about this a lot here at grace because it's really really important but membership which we stress so much here it's the ecclesia it's the gathering of the called out or the summoned ones and guys it's plural not singular because we have brothers and sisters in christ you are not the only one that christ set his affections on Set it on your brothers and sisters, and they're important too. And they're an agent of your sanctification as well. And if you've gone through the membership class, you've gone through Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 as our proof text that we are members of one body with Christ as our head. So, we're a smaller group, so this may not be as effective of a, a question. Do you know the names of half the people sitting here? Can you name at least 10 people that you've had some sort of meaningful conversation with outside of Sunday morning? Does anyone in the church know your struggles and sorrows? Do you pray for your church members regularly? I'm going to read Philippians 2, 2 through 11, because this is such a great text as we talk about being unified in Christ. So if there is any encouragement in Christ so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so Paul's writing this of what the Lord had inspired him to write in scripture but writing of the life and the example of Jesus and if you think back to what we looked at in John 17 the desire and and the desire for dwelling With Christ, it's mirrored here. So it tells us that our dwelling, meaning where we are, how we're known, these relationships, it really does reveal our desires as well. And Christ was true to his desire from start to finish. And he went to the cross and he paid the price and he submitted to the will of the Father for the glory of God, to reconcile you and me as fallen sinners to Him. So, where are we vulnerable and real? Where do we invest ourselves? Is our abiding for our own desires and pleasure, or do we give ourselves to the body of Christ to love and invest and be grown into spiritual maturity? So when I asked you about your initial thought of dwelling, does it reflect God's attributes, or do you need to recalibrate them? Does it reflect tribalism? I got all my family. Nothing's more important than family. Or does it reflect some sort of self-centered power, prestige? Oh, all these people like me, so I'm going to be here. I hope that you can truly say that it comes from a godly understanding of dwelling. So we're going to go back to to, uh, verse 4 with a deeper understanding of desire and dwelling, and we're going to wrap up. So the last part of that verse says, To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What do you find beautiful? Sunsets, sunrises, the beach, men, let's get personal. God's really apex of beauty is the woman, so is your wife the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen? It's good, but the creation only reflects the creator. There is so much beauty that we're going to behold. In the same way that Moses couldn't look upon the face of God and had to settle for seeing his back pass by, We are going to see beauty like we can't even understand. And that last part, to inquire in his temple. Well, in his temple, there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. This one's going to pass away, and he is going to recreate it, and it's going to be an awesome dwelling place. But don't miss this, and to inquire in his temple. Maybe this just hits me. I'm a Y guy. I got lots of questions on why this, why that. Now I know where my kids get it from. But, but truly, why? Why, Lord, did this happen? Why did you do it this way? Why couldn't you have done it this way? Vodi Bauckham has an awesome quote that he gives on this very thing. And he says that we as believers found in Christ are going to spend eternity unfolding the majesty and the mystery of Christ. So I hope that you can echo the prayer of David that we've looked at here in verse 4. And I'm going to ask you to read it with me in a moment. But brothers and sisters, this is what I hope that you take away from this. I hope that with understanding desire more fully, understanding our dwelling through God's examples and attributes, that as you read this, it will water down into your soul and it will have a new and encouraging and refreshing meaning to you as you go out into the world with those relationships and those struggles that you're going to encounter tomorrow. So let's read this together and just let it water down. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the hope that is found within. Lord, thank you for not allowing us to remain in our station of sinful, fallen, rebellious You are a good God. Lord, as we face the rest of this day, we face the work week to come that will bring its own challenges. Lord, I pray that we would think about where our heart lies. We will praise you for the freedom that you've given us from the bondage of sin, that you will give us faithfulness and obedience to choose godliness instead of sin and rebellion. So Lord we ask now that you would make this such an encouraging time for us as we've heard your word in so many ways that you would be with our brothers, brothers and sisters that you would give us eyes for them to love them to care for them we pray for the relationships in our home for our marriages for our children we pray for the kids to know you at an early age Lord we pray for the salvation of all our children here But Lord, we pray for our relationships with you. Lord, may we not say that's just the way it is. You've given us such a powerful thing to be able to put off the old man and put on the new body, as your word says. So help us to love you more than anything else that we see, hear, or experience in this life. So we bring this all before you humbly this morning. In Jesus' name.